All right, well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Reunions 2016. Glad you were able to come out and join us today. Uh, before we get started with the lecture, I uh, just want to make a reminder to please silence your cell phone ringers uh, while you are in here. Also, all of you should have gotten a green response card uh, as you walked in, so please, if you don't mind, fill that out. We do actually use them to help uh, determine our programs for next year. Um, so uh, with no further ado, uh, on behalf of Lifetime Learning and in partnership with the Alumni Association, I would uh, like to thank Jody Lehendro for coming out and for volunteering his time to speak with us today. Um, Joseph Dylehendro has been a historic preservation architect in UVA's facilities and planning construction department for more than 11 years. Um, he has been managing to work on, or managing work on the university's more than 100 designated historic buildings, including the Academical Village. Uh, previously, he had his own architectural practice in Richmond for about 18 years, specializing in historic preservation, restoration, and adaptive reuse. He also served as preservation architect for the Taliesin uh, Preservation Commission as it began its charge to preserve Frank Lord Wright's let me see if I can actually say that, Frank Lloyd Wright's home in uh, Spring Green, Wisconsin. Uh, Lehendro has received his Bachelor of Architecture degree from Virginia Tech and his Master's in Architectural History from the University of Virginia. So uh, please join me in welcoming Jody Lehendro. Less than two months from finishing the Rotunda project, our substantial completion date is July 31st. Um, the bad news is we've been doing the construction for three years and planning this for seven years, and I've got a lot of slides to show uh, to cover all that, because it's not enough just to show you what, how it started and how it ended, because it looks like it's just got a good coat of paint, and that's it. Um, a lot more has gone on. But first, so I thought I'd first just very briefly do a, a history of the rotunda, uh, give you a timeline, and then, you, then describe for you some of the project objectives. Uh, and then we'll go right into the project, and I'll show you a number of slides of uh, the construction work. Um, the icon of the university, uh, some would say of uh, Virginia. Uh, ironically, in the Academical Village, it has the least amount of historic fabric of all the buildings uh, because of a very tragic history, uh, starting with the fire of 1895, which gutted the building. Um, and immediately, um, you see McKimmean White was hired right after the fire, uh, and they came in and did a restoration, quote unquote. Um, and their work is shown in the yellow. Uh, this is the south portico facing the lawn. They added a north portico. There was no north portico of, of Jefferson's Rotunda. Um, and they also left out this floor and made a, a monumental uh, library inside. Um, this view Jefferson would never have recognized uh, facing University Avenue. Uh, because McKinmean White added this portico, the north wing, and all this plaza out here. Uh, in fact, Jefferson planted this hillside with scotch broom to keep people from coming to the rotunda from this side. He forced people to go 
down a road to the south end of the lawn and come up the lawn to the uh, rotunda. Uh, you'll notice also these early pictures. The capitals put on by McKinney and White are not carved. Uh, the university ran out of money during that project or did it on a shoestring budget and uh, could not afford to have the capitals carved. So it wasn't until 1902 that a fellow named Williams out of Richmond donated money to have the cap capitals carved and two uh, Italian carvers from New York City came down and did it. In the late 1930s, another significant project went on to replace all the um, uh, terrace paving uh, and, and ceilings for the wings. Also, they replaced the stairs and the portico steps. That work is shown in the green. Um, and like I said, the McKinley and White left this floor out when they reconstructed Rotunda because the, the Rotunda had gotten so many books by this time. Um, it, of course, was the intellectual head of the university, very radical for the time when chapels were normally put at the head of a university. Um, but then the, this activity, this, this, this purpose for the Rotunda, the main purpose for it um, went away in the late 1930s when Alderman Library was built and all the books were changed over to there. And from the late 1930s up until 1976, we struggled to find a use for the rotunda. Uh, here a flower show um, that Jefferson is overseeing. Um, and then in the late 19, well, I would say even in the 60s, 50s and 60s, uh, there was a movement to restore Jefferson's interior. Uh, and that work started in 1976 with the second gutting of the rotunda. Uh, they removed every bit of McKinley and White. Um, and, and then what you see in blue dates from 1976. Um, you'll see that the Guastavino tile dome in yellow, that was put on by McKinley and White to replace Jefferson's wood-framed dome, of course. Um, and... Uh, what do I want? Well, I've forgotten what I was, oh. So the floor was put back um, in 1976. And of course, this is what the dome room looked like in 1976. Note the perforated metal panel ceiling here. I'll be talking about that uh, in a little bit. So to reiterate, Jefferson's rotunda, the drum of the rotunda, the two south wings and the south portico facing the lawn, McKinney White added the north portico. They added the north wings, the colonnades that connected the wings, uh, and then the courtyards that uh, were formed by those, um, that perimeter construction, and then, of course, the north plaza. Uh, in terms of uses, this is the lower level, the first floor. Uh, it was used for classrooms. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, and the south wings um, were actually completely open. There was no fenestration in the openings, um, and they were used as gymnasia for the students um, for physical exercise. On the first, I mean, the second floor, uh, we had a meeting room and an exhibit uh, room, and then, of course, the dome room was used as the library. So, about a, uh, nine years ago, 
through the uh, deficiency reports that we do for all our buildings uh, periodically every couple of years, we started seeing chronic problems that uh, could not be handled with just maintenance. Uh, roof leakage, uh, uh, mechanical systems that were frequently breaking down. We did a historic structure report. We identified a long list of condition problems with the building. Uh, we phased it, uh, priced it out at $51 million worth of work. Uh, we didn't have that money then, uh, so we phased it, and we took off a piece to do the roof replacement, $5.5 million. Uh, we did that from May of 2012 to 13, um, and uh, that allowed, gave us time to uh, then raise the money and do the, the planning for the, the second phase of work. Um, this first phase attacked the problems that were actually uh, damaging uh, the, the most historic part of the building, the brick walls. The brick walls are all we had of Jefferson left. Um, when on the roof, uh, we took off the, uh, the, the roof that was leaking. We found through some probes that we had uh, a, a tension ring that uh, was badly damaged from the rusting and the leakage. Um, so we had to get to it, make repairs there. We put back a, a, a furring a system, wood furring system, that created a, a breathable uh, area beneath the new roofing, and then put the uh, copper, 20-ounce copper roofing on. And this work uh, was finished, as I said, um, three years ago. And uh, it amounted to uh, 4,000 sheets of copper, each cut uh, uniquely for fitting it uh, into this dome-shaped roof. And on the steps, uh, six tons of copper went into the roof. So what is this second phase? The second phase is what we're doing now. Uh, we started two years ago after final exercises. Um, and the objectives are very simply put here. Finishing the exterior repairs, this is mostly on the wings, uh, replacing the elevator, replacing the building systems, and adding mechanical space. This third item is actually accounts for at least half of the construction budget. Uh, this is all the mechanical, electrical, plumbing, uh, uh, security systems, sprinkler systems, media systems, um, hearing, assistive technology, all of that. Um, then, of course, Increasing the usage of the building and improving the landscape. Some of the problems we had are pretty obvious. Uh, spalling brick, uh, deteriorated mortar joints, uh, uh, mold and, and uh, staining of the marble, uh, spalling concrete, and then paint buildup on the ornament. Uh, we also, about seven years ago, found we had problems with the capitals. We start started finding piles of uh, dust, stone dust, on the floors of the porticos, looked up and noticed the acanthus leaves uh, were falling off. Um, we immediately put up scaffolding um, and had conservators come in. They did tests on the capitals and found that the McKinmean white capitals, which these are, um, came, were actually very, not very dense, uh, of, of very poor quality marble that through 100 years of freeze-thaw cycles were falling apart from the inside out. Uh, there was really nothing we could do about it. Um, the decision was made to replace them, and in the meantime, until we could, we covered them with those um, 
uh, uh, safety nets and bags. The elevator, um, the elevator that used to be in the building uh, was very difficult to get to. You had to go out to the Cryptoporticus, have a guide open up a door and take you up in the elevator and it would come out in the Board of Visitors room on the second floor. Uh, we have replaced the elevator with a little bit larger cab and then reoriented so that now you'll be able to get to it from the center hallway and anyone can use it. Uh, the systems that were put in in 1976 were shoehorned into existing very small spaces. Uh, they were rudimentary, simple systems, single volume, single temperature systems, regardless of the use of the room and how many people were in it and its exposure. Um, and it caused mildew on those acoustical uh, metal panels in the dome room. Uh, we couldn't, uh, our, our mechanics couldn't get around the system to do the repairs to them. They were so tight. Um, so we needed more space as a result of, and we needed to replace the systems. We studied several different possibilities for adding mechanical space. Uh, the one we settled on was to create a new underground mechanical room in the east courtyard. Um, and, that under, and also to create an underground room beneath the lower east oval room. Um, the design um, that we did has not only the mechanical room, but it, we added a small catering space. And all of these spaces are connected by an underground tunnel to a new elevator out here east of the building um, in, uh, next to the parking area for catering. Uh, and the idea is that catering will be able to pull up, unload their uh, um, racks of dinners uh, into the elevator, take them down to this tunnel, take them into the, the catering uh, space, plug them in to keep them warm, and then when needed, go back out to the tunnel and we've taken the elevator that's inside the building down one, full, one level lower uh, so that you can get to it from this tunnel and go up to the floor where uh, the, the uh, dinners or events are being held. Um, improving the usage of the building, this of course was closest to our hearts, the, the, the design team for, for the project. Um, and the most important thing we feel like that uh, contribution uh, that this project will have for the universities adding classrooms. Uh, for the first time, we'll have permanent classrooms back in the rotunda. Um, there, it, it's a, uh, I think it's a sin that there have been people graduated from the university over the last 70, 80 years that have never set foot in the rotunda. We hope to change that. We are not only adding three classrooms, permanent classrooms to the rotunda, but we're creating a, a, a uh, a, a number of study spaces for students as well, which I'll describe to you. Uh, we're opening up the South Portico door. Um, that's those doors that used to be just glass. Um, and you'd have to enter the rotunda. You came through the lower level, uh, and you came up through the bowels of the building to, to get to the upper floors. Um, we tried an experiment before we started, started this construction work of letting people come in through this door, and we ended up uh, finding out that 70, 80% of the people who visited the rotunda came through what the architecture tells you to come through. Uh, the, the, the south door from the lawn underneath that portico. Um, so it was very successful. 
This is the, what used to be the presidential reception room across from the BOV room on the second floor. It had this velvet rope across it, um, and you looked in and saw this, these nice antiques. All of these, all of this is gone now, and we'll be uh, furnishing it with overstuffed chairs and tables, and it'll be a study space for students uh, and for others, other people to use, and uh, also for meetings. Um, in the dome room, we are making, for the first time, this lower gallery accessible. We're adding a stair to it, and we will be uh, furnishing it with overstuffed chairs and tables, again, to invite students uh, into the room to, to use it as, as study space. The main level will be set up not with chairs like this, but with tables and chairs. We'll have some rows of chairs on one side for the uh, guides to use with uh, visitors. Um, but for the most part, it's going to be table and chairs, again, to invite people to come into the rotunda, students to come and use it. Hours are going to be extended. They'll even be able to bring in coffee, radical as that is. Um, but they will be able to, to enjoy themselves and, and, um, and experience the rotunda and hopefully get it back into the university community, uh, part of their daily life. This is the kind of spaces catering had. They only had one underneath the south portico. Uh, when they uh, had dinner events on the lower two floors, they would come down to Cryptoporticus and, and plate their dinners behind this screen next to the trash can um, and take it inside. In the dome room, they took up two of those niches on the side to store items. So we're providing them with space now in that lower um, mechanical or in that lower vault in the east courtyard for storage as well as for pre preparing for dinners. The classrooms that we've added, um, the south wings, this is the lawn down here. Uh, the southeast wing used to be the University Architect's office. They have been moved out um, and their offices are now going to be two permanent classrooms. The lower level, lower east, lower west oval room will now become a permanent classroom as well. Um, and then the southwest wing, uh, the off vice president for student affairs, their offices are going to move to the northeast wing. Um, and then we have changed this into a large multi-purpose room that will be available to the university community for events. We've also um, creating a in this west courtyard, this has been designed to be more of a reception type courtyard. I'll get into this further uh, later on, but uh, we're changing three of these windows into French doors so that you'll be able to have combined events inside this room as well as receptions out here in the west courtyard. Um, landscape improvements. Um, we've, uh, Olin, uh, landscape architects out of Philadelphia has uh, reconceived the landscapes, the two courtyards, and the North Plaza, and um, and we uh, and and we are now constructing uh, and have pretty much finished constructing the hardscape for those landscapes. I'll describe them uh, later on. So we began construction uh, a little over two years ago. Day after final exercises, we took over the building. And the first thing we did was put a building monitoring system on. This is a system that uh, uses four lasers on three of them outside, one of them in the lower level. They're hitting over 130 targets on the building. 
uh, at least once every four minutes, 24 seven, 365 days a year. Um, and they send that information to a website uh, that the design professionals uh, have access to, and then we're notified when there's a twelfth of an inch of movement um, uh, for these walls. At an eighth of an inch, we get an alarm. At a quarter of an inch, we shut down the project to find out what's going wrong. Um, the reason for this is because the most historic thing we have in the rotunda are the exterior brick walls. That's all we have left of Jefferson. Um, and so, and with the kind of intervention we're doing with those underground rooms uh, right next, and, and the underpinning that we had to do to the, to the drum of the building, we wanted to be sure we weren't going to damage those uh, historic brick walls. Um, utilities, we started those right away. Um, and they actually turned out to be very problematic for us. Uh, took us about uh, seven to eight months longer than we expected. We have most of central ground utilities going between University Avenue and the Rotunda. And our new utilities are going perpendicular to those. Those utilities date back to the late 19th century. Um, and we discovered that the maps of those utilities are not completely accurate. Um, and we had to redesign our utilities uh, a couple times and ended up going deeper. And of course, when we went deeper, we hit rock. So it, 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 uh, it delayed us, but luckily the contractor anticipated this, these kind of problems and they started this work right at the very beginning. Um, so to, to, do, to, to create those underground rooms uh, in the east courtyard and just inside the drum here in the lower east oval room, we spent that first summer and fall uh, doing underpinning of the building. Um, we did 84 shafts uh, that are excavated beneath the brick walls. The brick walls only go down a foot and a half to two feet below grade, and then they just stop. There's just brick right on top of the clay, uh, which was typical for the time. Um, and underpinning is no more sophisticated than it's been for hundreds of years. It's a, a, a guy with a shovel uh, in a pit digging down and his buddies up top with a bucket and a pulley um, bringing the dirt up and just going down and down. These, some of these pits went down 25 feet. Um, they are all done four to five foot wide um, at a, uh, and, and then once they're excavated to the full depth, they're poured with concrete and then you go uh, at least 15 feet away to start the next one. In this slide, there are at least there are seven different pits that are in progress or have been completed. Um, and as I said, it took about six months to do this work. But once it's done, the excavations went very quickly. Um, starting in uh, December of 14, started to do the excavations. Here you see those underpinning shafts underneath the Jeffersonian brick uh, wall of the drum. And that's, a, that's the bottom of that brick wall here. Um, and from December to February, uh, we hit the bottom of our excavation in February, uh, and then started to construct that concrete underground structure. And um, within months, uh, by June uh, of last year, uh, it was completed, we had roofed it over, put sand over it, and then uh, started erecting the scaffolding 
uh, for uh, doing the work to the exterior of the building. And this is the kind of space that we have underneath of here. This is that large mechanical room here um, with our air handler that serves the first and second floors. Uh, this is the tunnel, uh, this long tunnel here. This is one end of the tunnel looking towards the rotunda. And this is that small catering space that uh, is, is over here. And uh, during the process, uh, so this is the, the floor plan. Uh, that elevator, that new elevator out next to the catering parking area, this is an artist's rendering of what it's to, to look like. Um, this is during construction. This is the shaft of the elevator here. Uh, and this is the tunnel that's going underneath the colonnade and to those underground rooms in the East Courtyard. And this is as of yesterday, uh, the finished elevator um, building, uh, starting to put in the paving and the hardscape for the catering, um, and all of the, of course, uh, the work in the East Courtyard is completed. Um, the capitals. Capitals could be a, a, a lecture, a talk in itself. Uh, it's been fascinating. I told you about uh, how they, the McKinley and White capitals started falling apart, sugaring. Um, and this is a photo of the McKinley White capitals going in place. As you can see, they are the uncarved blocks of marble, Vermont marble. Um, this fellow is a very brave man right underneath uh, that capital being raised in place. Um, these are all the balusters uh, and the, and the um, um, pedestals for the uh, terraces. They were all cast concrete. They didn't last very long. They started rusting. Uh, the, the reinforcing started rusting, which popped the concrete. And that's why in the late 1930s, you had McKilsey come in and replace all of those with the marble that, you, that we have today. Um, so our contractor identified the capitals as a very long lead item, uh, so long that we started uh, working to get the capitals uh, made uh, about nine months before we actually started this phase of construction. Uh, we interviewed a number of firms um, and ended up choosing Rugo Stone out of Northern Virginia, teamed with Pedrini Carvers out of Carrera, Italy. We also investigated a number of different types of marble from all around the world and ended up choosing the same marble that Jefferson did uh, for the rotunda. Jefferson's original capitals were Carrera marble, um, and we ended up uh, choosing the same couple of pictures from Carrera, Italy. So in preparation for getting the capitals started, um, we gathered up all the pieces of the Jeffersonian capitals that had been lying around as paperweights on people's desks and, and doorstops and uh, from all around the university um, in Bailey Terrace or the Bailey Courtyard. Um, you have two of the largest sections of the original Italianate um, Carrera marble capitals. Um, so we gathered them together. We conservators clean. Uh, the samples in Bailey because we're going to be doing color matching as well. Um, then the Pedrini carvers came with their very sophisticated equipment, scanning equipment, scanned all these elements, then knitted together those scans to create a model, a digital model, that was about 85% of the original capital. 
Um, we didn't have that last 15% because we didn't have uh, remnants of those pieces. Uh, and they were mostly from the very top, the volutes uh, and acanthus leaves from the top of the capitals. Um, for those, we used photographs, historic photographs before the fire, um, and studied them, got good resolution, uh, prints made of them, and then started to work with Padrini carvers. They would do a quarter mock-up of a capital, um, and the top part that we had to work with them on, uh, they did out of clay. So our uh, design team would go to Carrera, uh, study the mock-ups, and then um, uh, do, uh, make, make uh, comments, critiques on the parts like the clay pieces. Overnight, Carrera uh, carvers would make the changes, and the next day they'd look at them and critique them again. Um, over th uh, several site visits, they finally, uh, we agreed to a full-size uh, mock-up of the capital, and then uh, Padrini went into production. Uh, production amounted to uh, five weeks on a CNC machine, uh, a, a computerized robotic arm machine that takes it from a large block of uh, marble down to within 10% of the finished product. The finished product has this kind of layering uh, effect to it uh, after the CNC machine. Then another five weeks for hand carving, for taking down that last 10% um, by hand, um, and we had 16 capitals, so um, uh, two and a half to three months for each capital uh, to be constructed. Um, and they, they're absolutely beautiful. Um, this is the McKimmean White uh, capital, and this is the Padrini capitals. We also, during this process, discovered a number of inaccuracies in the um, uh, McKimmean White capitals compared to Jefferson's originals. For instance, the McKinween White did not have this negative space between the volute and the upper acanthus sleeve, and yet we knew that was there from the photographs that we had. Um, and there's that space over here. It, it's just, it's completely inaccurate. Um, okay, so we have these capitals, now what? Um, it's not like pulling out the, the, the tablecloth and leaving all the uh, dinnerware in place on the table. Um, Engineers came up with a, a, a wonderfully innovative system of first putting shoring up that um, took the weight off of the columns. Um, there is a landing platform out here, and then they created a rail system at the level of the capitals that is made out of uh, uh, I-beams, uh, well, I'm sorry, channels. Um, and devised this, uh, this cart that um, the, this is the frame with the frame on it for lifting, but once it's in place, the frame comes off, and then the cart has these pneumatic wheels, uh, and they're pushed into place. Um, here, this process, of course, we're taking the old capitals out, uh, but putting the new ones in is just the reverse process. You can see the tracks here. Um, and those pneumatic wheels, they uh, are actually um, pumps that uh, uh, will lift uh, the capital up, uh, and then once it's in place, lower it down. Um, but you see here the capital being pushed to the particular column that it's going in, um, and then once it's in place, uh, uh, 
uh, grouting the, the joints. Um, and for a very brief time, we had all the capitals showing, um, but very soon after that, uh, boxed them up to protect them uh, from stray hammers and things falling, um, and then started dismantling the cornice work uh, and, and stripping paint off the stucco, repairing stucco of the uh, tympanum, uh, the portico um, pediment, and then the, 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 the columns, and this went on for, for many months. In fact, this is June 15, so it's a year ago. Um, one of the things that I, I said that we'd taken, we took the ornament off, um, what many people think is painted wood ornament is actually sheet copper that's pressed to these ornamental shapes and then painted. Um, the reason for that is that after the fire of 1895, uh, the Board of Visitors required that the building be fireproof. Um, so that's why McKim Mead White put a Guastavino tile dome on to replace Jefferson wood frame dome, and Jefferson's ornament would have been wood uh, painted. Um, but this caused us, uh, uh, none of us really had any experience with, uh, with copper ornament and repairing it. So we tried several different in situ cleaning methods, uh, were not satisfied with them, ended up uh, deciding to dismantle the ornament in the same sections that it was originally constructed, um, and taking it off site to a stripper up in Manassas that uh, used chemical baths to take the paint off. And then they, in their shop, they did repairs to the uh, ornament um, and primed it and then brought it back to site. This is a mock-up outside of their shop in Manassas um, and reassembled in place in the same sections that it, they, uh, in the same locations that they came from. And here, and this is the process of putting them back. Uh, this is the lower cornice. It was a built-in gutter. And we had intended to do these repairs during the, the wood replacement, I mean, sorry, the roof replacement work. Uh, but when we opened this up, we found that the uh, bolts that McKinney and White bolted these armatures, these cast iron armatures to the building with, they were bolted into wood plugs that were in holes in the mortar. And because of all the leaking of the roof, those wood plugs had rotted out, and the armature was actually falling away from the building. There was about two inches, two to three inches of gap um, at the top of, of the cast iron frames. So we put it back together again, and then during this project, we attacked it and, and made the repairs. We took all of these off. We had them uh, sandblasted, uh, recoded. Uh, with a uh, rust-proof coating. Uh, and then for attachment, we put in the stainless steel angles uh, and then Hilti epoxy anchors into the brick wall. Um, and then once that's in place, you can see then the elements of the cornice are reassembled and attached to it as they were in McKimmean White's construction. And we finally got around to painting the roof. Um, something that we've been trying to do for several years um, and just did not have the right combination of temperatures and, and climate conditions. Um, but we did, uh, when was it? Last summer, uh, we got around to painting it. Uh, it's, a two, it's a core flung uh, epoxy paint system that's guaranteed for at least 20 years. 
Um, the clock itself, the clocks, um, are interesting. Uh, our conservator, Mark Cutney, once we had scaffolding access to them, uh, spent time examining them and discovered that they had been changed quite a bit since they were put in. These, are, of course, were put in by McKinney and White in 1897. Um, Jefferson, of course, only had one clock at the South Portico. Uh, McKinney and White, of course, had the South and North Portico clocks. We had these historic photographs that started to tell us that, indeed, thing, changes had been made because you can see these minute indications here that don't show up in the clocks as, uh, as we got them. Um, Mark Cutney did some paint analysis to the clocks, discovered that they, it had been overpainted several times, and in fact, the, what were white letters were actually gold leaf uh, originally, which makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of being on the ground looking up at the clock. It would reflect the, the sky uh, more readily than a white paint. Um, so we have restored the clocks to what they originally were in McKinney and White's time. Uh, this is uh, April, uh, early April. Uh, still a lot of work going on. The ceilings uh, for the South Portico, uh, uh, painting the columns, uh, doing uh, work to the marble floors and the balustrades. And then a month, uh, a little bit more than a month later, um, all that is done. And our soon-to-be graduates are getting their pictures taken. For the North Portico, a similar kind of sequence. Uh, the, the September of 15, it looked like this. We had stripped, uh, we're taking away the, the ornament. Uh, we at the North Portico. Um, we, and we dismantled them, numbered all the marble treads and risers, uh, took them and stored them off-site, uh, had to replace much of this concrete understructure, um, and then waterproofed it, uh, and then brought back the uh, marble steps and, and, and put them back in their original locations. This is a new stair, new concrete stair at the bottom. Um, this is April, and this is May 20th, um, just before final exercises. Uh, all the terraces, all the, the, the wing terraces had to have their paving removed so that we could take up the, um, uh, the setting beds and the old waterproofing and re-waterproof. They, they had been leaking badly. One of the, the discoveries we made during this project when we took the ceilings out of the uh, offices below, um, the, they had been leaking so badly that they had rusted the reinforcing in the concrete floors, had popped it, and we had severe uh, structural damage to all of these roofs that had to be repaired. Uh, other exterior work that went on, stripping uh, columns, the paint off of uh, the colonnade columns, uh, restoring McKinney White's eagle, plaster eagle, that was at the ceiling of the South Portico. Um, running new plaster uh, cornices in the portico ceilings. Uh, we still have tradesmen who can do running plaster cornices. It's, uh, it's an art in itself. Uh, this, the, the concrete steps in the north. Um, oh, this is a sort of a month ago. This colonnade looked like this from all the stripping and the repairing going on. And as of yesterday, uh, it's being painted. 
Um, and the same kind of transformations happening in, in the, inside the building. Uh, this is uh, one of the South Wings, um, March 15, a little over a year ago. Um, and then in last fall, uh, starting to put in the mechanical systems and walls uh, in April uh, like this. And just uh, a few weeks ago, got our uh, wood floor in, and this is one of the classrooms, actually, in the southeast wing. The first floor center hallway, um, we, we took out the uh, steps, the stairs that used to be there. It had the same stairs from the lower level, that utilitarian bottom floor, to the main level, uh, as the main level did up to the dome room. Uh, we felt like the stairs in this lowest, lower level would have been far more utilitarian also. So we replaced them with these uh, shorter, simpler stairs um, that then allowed us to create a vestibule on the other side of the stair to the elevator. Um, but that left us, of course, with these openings, uh, infilled the openings here in December. Um, in April, uh, we're starting to construct the new stairs. Uh, this is just some of the infrastructure that's been put into the ceilings uh, all over the building. Um, and as of uh, yesterday, um, you can see, um, actually, my slides aren't, some of it, it's going off that side. Anyway, this is what it looked like uh, yesterday, and the new stair, uh, the finished carpentry is uh, com being completed on that. Um, the oval rooms on the second floor, um, well, this is actually the lower floor oval room with the chemical hearth at that end. Uh, a year ago, May, um, uh, tore out all the ceilings because that's where most of the infrastructure is going for all the new systems in the building. Um, February, last winter, uh, the brick floor, new brick floor is going in. And remember, this the lower east oval room this is the one that has the new me mechanical room underneath of it. And, um, and this is what it's looking like now, and this is the oval room above it, uh, the BOV room, actually, as of uh, a few days ago. Uh, in the dome room, we took out those uh, metal acoustical panels put in in 1976 that were mildewed and did not look very appropriate to the, the historic space. Uh, we replaced it with an acoustical plaster ceiling, uh, very uh, demanding, uh, small tolerance uh, kind of system, uh, a two-coat plaster system that's only a 16th inch thick for each coat, um, on top of a baseboard that's also a sound-absorbing uh, material. Um, and they had to be put in, a whole quarter had to be put in at one time. There could not be any cold joints in it, no stopping and starting. Uh, and so in this picture, there were actually 15 different plasters doing five different tasks, one right behind the other. They practiced this for a week before they started putting in the ceiling. It was really a, 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 an amazing choreography to watch. Um, and we, what was before, with the... A, mildewed acoustical metal perforated panels uh, is now today looks like this. Um, the dome room, the lower gallery, 
Uh, I told you about adding a stair um, to that lower gallery. This is that stair. Uh, uh, this is a month ago, and this is as of a few days ago. Um, that lower gallery has a heart pine floor that is, uh, has now been refinished. Um, and this is what it looked like uh, a couple of months ago, putting in all the infrastructure uh, in that ceiling. The capitals in the dome room, um, they dated to 1976, when uh, the dome interior was restored, quote unquote. Um, and they were cast plaster. This is them, um, the, every other capital uh, in, a, in, in a pair like this, uh, one of them is actually cut in half because there is a structural post that goes up through that column. Um, when we studied these, we found that there were several inaccuracies in these compared to the pictures we had of the dome room prior to the fire. In fact, the only documentation we have of the interior of Jefferson's rotunda is in this dome room. All the woodwork that you see in the floors below is conjectural um, based upon precedents in the academical village, but we have no documentation of what that actually looked like um, before the fire. Um, but we do have it in the dome room, and we started studying these photographs, and we knew from documentation that they were actually, the original capitals were made of wood. They were uh, carved by a gentleman named Sturdivant in Richmond, um, and who we studied other uh, capitals that he did. Monumental Church in Richmond, is, uh, he, he, he carved those capitals. Also Pavilion 9, he carved those. Um, and they're actually made up of elements, individual elements that are carved and then assembled into the capital. Um, we hired a firm out of Richmond, Tectonics, uh, to carve to replace these capitals with wood capitals, carved wood capitals, uh, replicating the originals. Uh, we studied very closely photographs of the pre-fire Jeffersonian original capitals, um, and then went through the same process of uh, digital modeling, clay modeling, uh, looking at mock-ups, um, and then agreeing to a full digital mock-up, having a uh, uh, a, a physical sample made, and then approving it and starting to work again using a uh, CNC robotic arm machine to take, we used mahogany, the originals were white, northern white pine, but we could not get the kind of old growth uh, white pine that we needed for these capitals, so we ended up using mahogany, um, taking it down to about 10% and then hand finishing that last 10%, and this is what the capitals look like now. Um, far more th uh, three-dimensional uh, uh, figuring in the capital. Um, it looks uh, like an assembled element with these acanthus leaves being attached to the drum and the volutes and the fleuron. Um, this is a wonderful Bill Wiley uh, photograph he did just a few days ago. Um, so let's talk about landscape. Um, are the, the objectives that the University Architect's Office established with Olin and our architects uh, were to create um, for the North Plaza, a, to break down that very expansive space. You might remember it had uh, brick down the center, 
grass around the flagpoles, but was mostly this open uh, area. Um, provide flexible space for events and then create a human-scaled uh, place. Uh, the same kinds of things for the courtyards. Um, creating inviting space for people um, and also flexible space for functions. Um, Olin conceived of the courtyards uh, in, in different ways. The East Courtyard, they thought of uh, as, and designed it as a more contemplative, quiet place. It's a morning. It's on the east side, so it catches the morning light. Um, we have larger, large planters with small shrubs in them, uh, with uh, lots of benches around a fountain. Um, this is what it looked like before. This, uh, this marble fountain that didn't work, um, it well, leaked all the time. Um, and then a field of liriope, uh, monkey grass around it. Um, this is a sketch of uh, during the design process, and this is what it's looking like today. We have all the hardscape in. They are starting to assemble the marble around the fountain uh, in the center. And remember, underneath of this, we have that mechanical room. Um, this, is a, a, this is why I don't want to show before and after, is because you don't get to see all the stuff that we put in. Um, and uh, so we'll be starting to do the plantings uh, later in the summer, closer to fall. Um, this is the west courtyard. Uh, it's designed to be, because of those, um, it's actually under here, that we have those doors coming out of the multipurpose room. Um, it's a more open space. It'll have four small trees in it um, and planting, plantings. Um, and the, but it'll have loose chairs and tables. And we do have the um, infrastructure for adding a fountain in the future. Uh, uh, donor opportunity. Uh, so anyone interested, you can see, put your name right there. Um, the North Plaza, as you as I described, was uh, brick down the uh, center, uh, grass, but all open. Um, Olin conceived of it as being two small outside rooms around the flagpoles uh, and, and uh, with small shrubs, fringe trees actually, which is a native small tree, um, and benches so that people can come and sit and um, uh, enjoy the space. Uh, the trees are designed so that they will not compete uh, visually with the building itself or not hide the building. Um, and the North Plaza, the progression, uh, June of last year, a year ago, it looked like this with uh, the finishing up the utilities going in. Um, and then in January, starting to put down the gravel. The North Plaza is a permeable um, plaza, permeable uh, space in that it allows stormwater to seep through the brick paving into underground reservoirs so that it'll dissipate uh, slowly and it saves that water from being dumped into storm systems and then directly into the rivers. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a sustainable, uh, environmentally sensitive um, uh, area and uh, this is as of a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, just before final exercises. Um, and this is final exercises. Um, 
It was a glorious day. Thankfully, uh, the thunderstorms held off, because otherwise we'd have to uh, have held it in John Paul Jones Arena um, after the contractor had worked so hard to get the space ready for the graduates to use. Um, uh, a, a joyous day. Um, the contractor even used brick to spell out congratulations in the uh, west courtyard as the graduates processed around on the terrace. In the east courtyard, uh, my colleague Brian Hogg had the brilliant idea of getting some rubber duckies with little graduation hats and diplomas, and the, uh, the kids loved it as they processed around. Um, some discoveries we made. Uh, I, the, 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 probably the most significant one for me has been the chemical hearth, and you probably read something about it. Uh, back in 1976, when they did the uh, full uh, interior gutting and reconstruction, they found these two little fireboxes, and so uh, historic fireboxes. So they put little doors on it so that people can look inside, and that's what's here. But our architect, during the research for this current phase of work, uh, put his head in and, and pushed and went as far back as he could because he's trying to get the thickness of that wall, and he noticed that there was a cavity above him. So we stripped the plaster off and created a, um, an exploratory hole in that wall and discovered a niche that uh, was plastered over with a stone countertop and four, five openings in that countertop. Um, we then got into the archives and discovered that um, there was a significant number of letters between the first user of that space, John, uh, John M. Emmett, who uh, was the first professor of natural history at the university uh, and uh, taught chemistry in this Lower East Oval Room. The Lower East Oval Room he used for chemical experiments. The Lower West Oval Room he used for lectures in chemistry. Um, we then started finding a, just a, 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 a treasure trove of documents. Um, this is a, oh, sorry. This is a, sh a sheet of drawings that Emmett made of um, devices, of, of, of assessed, uh, the chemical apparatus that he had just purchased in New York City. Uh, and he was so excited, he, he drew little pictures of the stuff he he purchased and sent it back to Jefferson and to Brockenbrough. We have a number of letters between Emmett, Jefferson, and Brockenbrough describing how, or, or, or discussing the chemical hearth, his need for it, what it should be designed uh, to do, and, and trying to figure out where to place it. Um, and there's even this, this drawing of a grill bar, um, it's a great bar, sorry. Um, and that is still there. I mean, it's absolutely amazing to, to, have a, to, to see something drawn like this and to, to, to go and see it in place. It was made and, and put into place. Um, so the way it operated uh, was that you would, uh, the, the, uh, we have hired this firm also to do all the, this, the, this research into the chemical hearth. Uh, discovered that Emmett um, was different from his teachers and that he liked to have students actually do some of the experiments. So we think that's one of the reasons why there were so many different apertures. Um, and um, the way uh, they would burn the fuel for 
the chemical experiments in these two fireboxes, either wood or coal, depending upon the heat they needed for the experiments, and then transfer the fuel to those different apertures. There are grates uh, about a foot below the, the, the stone countertop surface. Um, and then either use sand or some other medium to temper the, the heat from the fires for conducting experiments. We do it today just by simply turning a Bunsen burner, but of course uh, they couldn't do that then. And fire and heat is very important for, for doing experiments. Um, we also discovered a very sophisticated underground tunnel system that brought fresh air in from outside to each of the fireboxes and to each of those apertures and an internal flue system that took away the fumes from the fire as well as from the experiments themselves. A really remarkable uh, discovery, uh, more so in that, am I running out of time? Five more minutes. Um, more so in that, so far it, it's been discovered this is the only one extant in the world from the early 19th century. Um, it is luckily in the visitor reception room, so we'll be able to, um, to display it and have interpretive signage uh, and, and um, information on it. Um, we had our scanners from uh, the Alderman Library come in, do scans of it. Um, we knew about a cistern in the East Courtyard because we're going to be excavating that East Courtyard. We had archaeologists go in about nine months ahead of time. They discovered it. The cistern dates from uh, 1853, um, and we know that because uh, the workers, before the parging set up, uh, the concrete parging on the brick set up, they wrote their names uh, in it. And uh, one of them was recognized by the archaeologist, and we're able to trace it back to 1853. Three cisterns were constructed in anticipation of the annex being built in 1854. Uh, it was also scanned. We found a cistern on the west, court, west side, but there we didn't have to um, uh, excavate it, so we simply covered it over and left it for the future. Um, other odds and ends found during our work. Um, I won't go into this. The schedule, uh, we are in the home stretch, focusing mostly on finishes. Uh, commissioning the project as well as uh, then landscaping and, um, and then moving in furniture. Um, we do have a construction blog. You saw some of the webcam um, there at the very beginning. Uh, the contractor has put in Whiting Turner, excellent, excellent contractor, put together a, a video of the webcam for the project. Um, great people. I love working with the people who are doing the construction here. Uh, Whiting Turner, like I said, is the uh, construction manager. Um, wonderful firm. It's, it really feels like a team effort. It's, it's not adversarial. There's no one worried about uh, being responsible for uh, change order. We're all working together, and it's a great team of people. Um, and I end with this uh, rather sick kind of... Um, commemoration that they used to have in the 60s and early 70s where they would uh, do a cake with the rotunda and the annex instead of the fire to commemorate the burning of the rotunda. Um, and this is actually Mrs. Shannon, uh, President Shannon's wife. So it was, uh, it was well attended. Uh, I'd be glad to answer questions uh, for the three minutes I have left. Jen? Oh, actually, uh, we've got about uh, five, ten minutes 
Oh, okay, good. Time for that. So, um, we are actually recording this for a lecture on podcast um, that people can listen to later. So, if you have questions, raise your hand, and we will bring the microphone to you so you can actually be heard asking questions online. So, here's our first question. Thank you. For, first of all, thank you for an amazing lecture on that. You're welcome. Thank you for being enthralling. here. Enthralling. And uh, I have a question on uh, how much of the complexity was due to the shape of the building? I mean, I know the age of the building clearly and the fact that you want to make sure you preserve things, you know, archaeologically and such. But how much of that, you know, is, is just due to that, uh, you know, basically round shape of the building, circular shape? Um, it, it really didn't affect our work all that much, of course. Um, Although I say that, and, and uh, just yesterday I was going up the stair, that new stair in the lower level to the second floor, and they're putting in the cap molding on the base, and they're having to cut it into eighth-inch uh, sections so that they can laminate it together and make that curve. Um, and, and I didn't hear them say any bad words, but I'm sure they are to themselves. Um, it, it's, I mean, not only is the building round, but then you have three oval rooms uh, within that round building, and then an hourglass-shaped hall. Yeah, there's not a straight line in, in the thing. Um, and it's, I'm sure in 1976, they did a lot of cursing when putting in that woodwork. But we, we're reusing all that woodwork that they put in in 76, except for the few pieces of, of elements that we're putting in. Uh, thank you again. That was uh, fantastic. Uh, I was floored to find out that the North Portico was not there before. Is there images? Do we know what that looked like? If if he had uh, plantings to keep people from going that play that way. Um, Eric, is this? Can I? One of the things I skipped over very quickly was evidence of that north side. Um, all we have is Jefferson's floor plan. It shows a single door on the north side, a stoop and stairs coming down from it. Um, in the discovery phase, you can't see it very well here because of the light, but this is the original north wall. It's inside of a bathroom now that was put, on, uh, put in by McKinney and White. Um, but you're able to see the original brickwork. It's beautiful brickwork. Um, and we found this paint ghost from one of those stairs. We had assumed the stairs were masonry, um, but this proved to us that those stairs that were on the north side of the building were actually wood. Um, and uh, so this, it, even, even in the building with as much damage that has happened over time, uh, we're still discovering things of Jefferson. This is in the lower east oval room, we had documentation of the fact that there used to be posts in that room, uh, but no physical evidence of it. So when we took the floor up, we had the archaeologists go in, and sure enough, they found two uh, brick foundations for wood posts that uh, supported the, the, the ceiling in that room. So the, the north elevation was plain, had a single door um, and stairs, and, and like I said before, the, the hillside was planted with scotch broom to keep people from approaching it from that side. In the back, Jen? I have a, I have a quick question oh, for oh, you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, 
one of the very first things that uh, you showed us was the actual rotunda itself being propped up before you did the excavation in east and west wings. Uh, what was holding up the rotunda before that? Had there been additional support structures put in place underground? No. Um, are you talking about the underpinning yes. slide? Yeah, we, they, we used um, just the needle beams to hold up that small section. That's why the underpinning was done in shafts about four to five foot wide. Um, and, and they then went 15 feet away and did the next one. Um, it's so that, because we're only supporting small amounts of, of that wall. And, and structurally, the only part that was uh, threatened in that kind of situation is you take a 45 degree angle from that shaft and you bring it up. And it's just that pie shape above the, um, uh, the shaft that's threatened. But like I said, we put needle beams in there and we held all that up in place as we dug uh, the, the underpinning shafts below it. So that, no, there was nothing more sophisticated in place to hold it up than that. The mechanical space, I believe you said, was beneath one of the oval rooms. Is that correct? Uh, there, we have two mechanical. We have a large mechanical space in the east courtyard, underground in the east courtyard, and the lower east oval room has a mechanical space below it now. Was there any additional structural support systems you had to put in place aside from the underpinning to construct that, or how did they? No. First, we put in all the underpinning. Uh, we put in. We extended the, found, the, the walls, essentially. It, we extended the foundations of the walls 15 to 20 feet below um, grade. Um, and then uh, once that was in place, then started excavating down, uh, taking the dirt out. And we took the dirt out in the courtyard and in the mechanical room uh, at the same time so that we didn't overcharge one side uh, or the other. Thank you. Sure. Um, and you had mentioned a lot of the, um, I guess, the research and that you've, uh, in terms of historical data, um, but that a lot of it was still conjecture in certain um, uh, areas of the of the renovation. Is that just because a lot of the blue, original blueprints may have been burnt in the original fire, or? I, I, are you speaking of the 1976 work that, uh, as I pointed out, was a lot of it was conjectural inside the the. Um, there, I mean, there were no original blueprints. We have Jefferson's drawings, and there's a handful of those. And, and typically at that time, Jefferson depended upon his contractors, the undertakers, mm -hmm. they were called at the time. Uh, and he'd worked with both Nielsen and Dinsmore for many years, and they knew Jefferson's style and what he wanted in terms of, of moldings. And, and Jefferson would scratch out what he'd want, and then they'd go and build it. So it's a very personal, direct relationship, and there weren't such things as blueprints or contract documents at the time. And frankly, even those that we have, you can't trust them. Um, we have uh, Jefferson's documents of, of all the pavilions, and some of the pavilions just aren't constructed like his drawings show. Um, so we know for a fact that they would make changes uh, uh, during the construction process. The architects at that time were not as uh, fond of recording their each step as you are today. <laughs> Co correct. <laughs> um, we have building codes today. Yeah. Uh, related to the last question, uh, with so many different versions of the building over so many different years, how do you decide which one to turn into the current future? 
and how do you balance that against different people's perceptions of the buildings? Um, the, the decision was to, to stay with what was done in 1976 because of a couple of things. One, yeah, we knew a lot about McKinley and White's building, and we still have a number of, of those materials in storage uh, out at Birdwood and Barnes out there. Um, but uh, we, uh, the, the stuff that was done in 1976, no one was going to want to go back to uh, a monumental uh, interior. Um, and where we could, where we had information that they didn't have in 1976 and we were able to restore something, we did. But that happened very little. We, we, um, uh, I, I, I can't think of anything right, really off the top of my head right now. Um, but like the stairs on the first floor, that, that's our conjecture. But it's based upon our experience of, of knowing the architecture and working with the architecture, the architecture of that period. Um, and um, so it really wasn't, did not come to the question about uh, should we restore another interior. Um, now, if today McKinney and White's interior was in here, um, I think there's a very good chance that we would not uh, take it out. We would not put back Jefferson's interior. We would not destroy a historic interior itself to create a conjectural interior. Um, that it just, it was a different time then. Okay, we have time for one last question over here. The Jefferson statue on the main floor, were there any issues in getting that out of the building? No. Um, it, actually, there's a funny story about that. Um, we hired uh, a, a specialty moving firm that moves uh, historic artifacts. They came in with a mini crane uh, that lifted up. They lifted it up. They constructed a plywood box specially made for it. Uh, they put it into the box, and then we moved it mechanically out. And it's actually been in the small special collections library on display there during this project. Um, but the day that we were moving it out uh, was also the day that a fellow from ha uh, Habitat came by to pick up some items that we uh, were giving to Habitat that we would not be reusing. And um, a wonderful man, and he said, you know, I, I remember moving that statue uh, back uh, when, when this building was done in 76. And sure enough, we found photographs of him. Um, and the way they moved it in 1976 was they had a little red wagon with a bale of hay in it, and they put, tipped it onto the bale of hay, laid it down on it, and pushed that wagon uh, out of the building. I don't know where they stored it at the time, but uh, that was just fascinating coincidence uh, that the, he showed up that, one, that particular day. He worked with R.E. Lee, who was the contractor who did the work in 1976. All right, well, thank you, everybody, for coming out and listening to Jody Lehendro, and thank you to thank you. Jody for coming out and speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Enjoy reunions. Have a great time. You've got better weather than they did last week. And uh, those uh, response cards, if you don't mind, just handing them in either to myself or to the uh, young lady outside at the desk that you will pass. Um, we want to go ahead and thank you again, Jody, oh. for coming back out here. We really appreciate it. It's always thank a pleasure. You very much. And have a great weekend, everyone.